0: Warning, this episode contains spoilers and strong language. Welcome, everybody, to the fifth and final episode of Barbroians, a podcast exploring the cinematic careers of David Paul and Peter Paul, also known as the Barbarian Brothers. I am Noel. Joining me, as always, is JD. What up, bro? What up? We did an episode of ShumaCast covering DC Cab. We've done four episodes covering all four of the films in which the Barbarian Brothers were the lead actors. So we're doing a final episode where we're just going to kind of step back and look at a broader overview of their entire careers. Recap those movies. We're going to look at all the little guest appearances that they've had. In a surprisingly brief career. Yeah. The majority of what I have here is basically from 1980 to 1995. So that's 15 years and then just a couple of reappearances. Mm -hmm. Again, the Barbarian Brothers were born March 8th, 1957 in Hartford, Connecticut. So it's like by the time their career really kicks in in the late 80s, they're already in their 30s and they're pushing 40 by the time everything ends. And it's kind of interesting that it's like just this brief decade almost of their lives where they were stars.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's no secret that Hollywood spits people out on the regular, but these guys were so charismatic and they were fairly successful. I mean, you sent me some interviews and they talked about like how some of these films were actually really successful. But for whatever reason, they just never seem yeah. to click with the Hollywood. It's
0: inflating a few things.
1: <laughs> well, yes, yes.
0: What's interesting about a lot of people who are like the Barbarian Brothers, either they'll maybe have like one or two things and then maybe just a scattering of supporting roles. Or they have a really long, successful career. And it's it's like how these guys, they just had this interesting peak and then it went down. Right. They had a good run, a pretty surprisingly lengthy run while also sadly short run. They hit that middle ground there.
1: Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. They had success. It wasn't like they were a one-hit wonder per se. I mean, they were never huge as the biggest, like they weren't Arnie Or physically. Well- Yes, yes, no. Physically, they were quite large. Yeah. But, you know, they were never the successes of Bruce Willis or right. Arnold Schwarzenegger or anything like that. But they still were able to lead their own films, yeah, yeah. and then
0: they weren't. And it stopped. We should probably stop recapping. Sorry. We're getting into our final thoughts at the beginning of the episode, which is always a great way to start. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, let's just start chipping through their career. So again, around the 70s, the mid-70s was when they were going into college. And then that's when they really started diving into bodybuilding. And that's when they started building their stage routines. They started doing tours, breaking local records, all that stuff. That led to them getting a talent agent. And their debut was in 1980. Now, had you ever heard of the sketch comedy series Fridays before? I had.
1: I think they may have like reran it on Nick at Night Mm -hmm. or something like that. But I had no memory of it until yeah. you sent me this clip.
0: I was wondering about that because I wasn't sure if it ever had rerun because I didn't remember ever having seen it. I knew SCTV. I knew a few other sketch comedy series. But Fridays kind of ran my me despite the fact it was ABC's attempt to recreate SNL. But we're going to beat them by a night by airing on Friday. Yeah. And it ran for three seasons, for three years. And that's enough to get a syndication package out of. So I'm surprised I haven't seen it do the rounds more. Mm-hmm. I actually found two sketches from this show. I think I only sent you the one at the beach. Yes. I also found one where it's that same character played by Michael Richards, but at a gym. Huh. Okay. So David Paul appears in two sketches, Dick at the Beach and Dick at the Gym. You can actually find both of them on YouTube. Dick at the Gym, I know, is a season one sketch. I believe Dick at the Beach is two. Michael Richards was one of the lead actors on this. Yeah. Is Michael Richards. Yeah. You know, when I mean, he's not going on racist rants and apologizing profusely for it. He's not an untalented comedian, but I was surprised. I didn't really know anyone else in the cast, though I see that Larry David was one of the main writers and also a performer on it.
1: I think he's the guy who throws the football. Oh,
0: was that him?
1: I think that was him on the beach. Yeah. He He
0: had so much hair.
1: Yeah. Well, (laughs) it's hard to tell because he looks so differently today, and that's where I mainly know him. He looks remarkably different now, obviously.
0: Yeah, and both of these sketches are built around this character named Dick, who's basically a dick. I hesitate to say like a Mr. Bean type, but he's that same just wiry physical comedy. It's someone who is trying to show off and impress people, but he's not good at it. Yeah. And is kind of clueless. He's not like an asshole dick, he's just a clueless dick. Yeah. What do you think of the at least the sketch at the beach?
1: It reminds me of that sketch on The Simpsons where Krusty the Clown is on SNL and he's got like the giant ears and no one's laughing at any of the jokes. He's like, oh, I got five more minutes of this. It's one joke and it just keeps going. It's that he's this clueless dick who doesn't quite realize he's not as smooth as he thinks he is. He's not as sports-like as he thinks he is. A lot of it is this Michael Richards just doing a lot of physical comedy. Mm-hmm. There's not really any jokes. No. It just really relies on how much you like watching Michael Richards just flail around.
0: (laughs) And just kind of stiffly walk while his hands are bent. He's just kind of going like, yeah, you're good.
1: Yeah. we're fine. Yeah. Hey. And that's pretty much the entire joke.
0: Yeah. They were both pretty grown worthy to watch. It's like the concept of the character is fine. I think Michael Richards is a very gifted physical performer and I like how they even really make use of just how lean his silhouette is and make Mm -hmm. eggs out of that. But there's just no construction to any of it. It's the most weakest, basic gag writing, and there's no real builds, there's no real payoffs, there's no... Evolution of things as the gag goes along. It's just here's some stuff that happens.
1: Yeah. The girl just gives him her number for no reason that I can tell. And he forgets it. Yeah. That's the joke. There was no build up to him confusing numbers or anything like that that might have helped sell that. Mm-hmm. It's just like, oh, we need a button. I guess this will do.
0: Yeah. And so David Paul, he appeared in that sketch. He didn't really play a part in it. There was just this bit where Michael Richards needs to rinse off at one of the showers on the beach, but this giant muscly guy is using the tall shower, so Michael Richards has to get down on his knees in order to use the low shower. That's the entirety of the gag.
1: Yeah. Not exactly a showcase for... Did you say this was David or?
0: That's David. David seems to be the one who initially had more of an acting presence and then Peter kind of gradually came into it.
1: Okay. It's not exactly a showcase of David's career.
0: (laughs) No. Dick at the gym, the sketch for that is literally all these bodybuilders working out at a gym and Michael Richards just stumbling his way around trying to fit in. Mm -hmm. He's like, yeah, I think my legs are good. I'm going to work my arms. No, my arms are good too. And, you know, he's like at a mirror next to a bodybuilder and there's not much to it. And there's this one bit where he goes over to a bodybuilder played by David and he goes, hey, I heard this fun joke. Do you know what's an easy way to lose 10 pounds? Cut off your head. David just pushes him away. And that's it. That's the entirety of the gang. (laughs)
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a shame we lost this cultural milestone yeah. of Fridays. <laughs>
0: I would be curious to check out some more Fridays. I mean, granted, I've never really gotten into the Larry David style of uncomfortable, awkward humor. Yeah. I never got into Seinfeld. I've never really checked out Curb Your Enthusiasm. It's just not my thing. I'm not saying it's bad. It just doesn't click with me.
1: Yeah, I get it.
0: And I think a lot of these sketches, even more so than the physical humor, are just about awkward discomfort.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree.
0: So, yeah, I think that's one on the Barbarian Brothers checklist that you can just cross out. You don't really need to dig it up. No. He's mostly just a background performer in both of them. Mm-hmm. He's an extra, basically. Yeah. A year or two later, November 23rd, 1982, David appears in an episode of Happy Days called Going Steady, which is a season 10 episode.
1: I had forgotten that Happy Days ran that long. <laughs>
0: Why do you think the jumping the shark thing exists? I'm pretty sure this is after that.
1: (laughs) I knew it ran for a long while. I just still associate it so strongly with the 70s that I was alive when new episodes of Happy Days were coming out. I kind of forgot that.
0: Well, as long as it's still going in the ratings, they are still going to crank them out. Yeah. But yeah, David just has a, a bit part. The plot of this one is Fonzie finally decides to go steady with his girlfriend, who it's not that Pinky Tuscadera that he was dating earlier in the show. He throws this big party, you know, even brings his grandma and everything. And David Paul just plays this character who's like a big greaser named Animal, who just speaks it very monosyllabically. Mm What do you think of the clip that I sent you?
1: Uh, it was so short that I almost forget what happened to it. He picks somebody up and-
0: He talks to the grandma, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, and that's about it.
0: Hannibal Happy. Yes, yeah. And I couldn't find if he was in any more of the episode, because they refer to him as almost like he's an existing character. And I wasn't able to find if he's someone who popped up in other episodes. So I don't know if- obviously he wasn't a regular, but I don't know if he's someone who popped up over a year or so on Happy Days. yeah.
1: It seemed almost like the moose of Riverdale, you know, like mm-hmm. the big dumb ox guy, you know, which would fit in the show like that. But I, it's been a long time since I watched any Happy Days, so I really don't remember yeah. <laughs> if he's ever appeared or anything like that.
0: This might shock you. I have no desire to go back and rewatch Happy Days. <laughs> I'm sure it was a lovely show and the people who enjoyed it, go for it. There's so much
1: on TV right now.
0: <laughs> I would still rather go back and re-watch Cheers, which I'm not being comparative. I actually want to watch all of Cheers. I want to watch all of... I've never watched all of MASH. I would love to watch all of MASH. Yeah. Maybe not after MASH, but all of MASH. Yeah. I don't really need to watch that entire swath of Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley and all the other spinoffs. Lenny and Squiggy Mork and Mindy Mork and Mindy
1: Though that kind of holds up just because of Robin Williams
0: Something and Chachi
1: Yeah, Joni and Chachi Joni and Chachi Joni loves Chachi Yeah Yeah.
0: I don't really feel a need to I'm too busy reading all of the X-Men comics that are ever published
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, it's not high on my list either
0: I'm too busy watching all of G.I. Joe
1: (laughs) Hey, no, I don't blame you on that one
0: And podcasting about Thunder of the Barbarian
1: (laughs) Blatant plug
0: Yeah Now, I couldn't get an exact date on this one. They also appeared in a sketch. This is the first time we got both of them on screen, both Peter and David, on Not Necessarily the News. And Not Necessarily the News debuted as a half-hour special in 1982 and then had a series that ran from 1983 to 1990. So I don't know if this was from that original 82 special. I don't know if it was like 83, 80, 45. But we're about to hit those years where they actually start having prominent acting roles. So I'm guessing, given how small their part is in this sketch, that it was still probably I want to say 82,
1: 83. Yeah, that would make sense.
0: Yeah. And they were just in a sketch where it's a couple using a TV remote to argue over what to watch. You know, he wants to watch the bodybuilding competition, which features the Barbarian Brothers. She wants to watch a soap opera. So they decide, why not both, and start playing with the remote in a way that starts crossing the series over with each other. So suddenly you have a soap opera starlet is now competing in the bodybuilding competition. You have one of the Barbarian Brothers is now lovingly drinking a glass of champagne with a soap opera star. And then other weird crossovers of TV shows crossing the streams. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think of that sketch? I think it's
1: actually one of the funniest things that we've discussed so far. Yeah. It wasn't super memorable, but it was short enough that it didn't overstate its welcome like the Friday sketch. So it was funny.
0: Yeah, it's only about a minute and a half. Again, like getting into what I said about Fridays, it's a sketch that does have an evolution as the sketch goes along.
1: Right. Clearly, they built up to something, and then when it got to its zenith, they left. They didn't keep going on for five minutes.
0: Right. And not necessarily the news was one of the first major shows of Conan O'Brien. Oh, really? That's cool. As writer and producer. And I think this led to him getting on SNL.
1: That makes sense to me.
0: But no, it was a fun sketch. And then December 16th, 1983, DC Cap.
1: Yay! Let's talk about that for about two hours.
0: Yeah, which again, we did an entire episode on. You were on for it. That's the Joel Schumacher written and directed film about a ragtag DC cab company and the Barbarian Brothers are among its ensemble of oddball characters. Just kind of looking back, do you still enjoy DC Cab?
1: I do. I actually rewatched a little bit of it just the other day. In one of the interviews, they had talked about how Mr. T couldn't remember some lines. And so he had to carrying the script when he's standing right in front of the Lincoln Memorial. I was like, oh, let me just find that. Mm -hmm. So I was like looking for it. I just found myself falling into watching it again. I was just like skimming through like, I want to watch this bit. And of course, I had to re-listen to the end credits where it's just watching them all look like they're having the best time in the world in this (laughs) parade. I still enjoy it quite a bit. There's obviously things I still think are problematic, but there's so much of it that's just fun.
0: And I agree with you. I think It Still Holds Up as just a really fun, enjoyable comedy. There's maybe like two specific things I would like to edit out of that movie, and the rest of it is just a really fun screwball comedy. Yeah. And what I like about the Barbarian Brothers in this one, where they play two identical twin cab drivers, by the way, we haven't mentioned the evolution of their look yet. In all the ones that we've had leading up to this is where they still have the kind of, it's not really like a mullet mullet. They have the curly hair that goes down just to the end of their neck. Yeah. It's not full long hair, but it's also not full of mullet because it's, you know, it's just all combed back.
1: It's the kind of Lou Ferrigno style.
0: Exactly. And they've been clean shaven in those. And this one, they have that same style of hair with headbands, but they have beards.
1: Right. Though I did notice in the parade, they rarely focus in on them, but they're clean shaven in that.
0: Oh, okay. So they shaved.
1: So I don't know if that was done afterwards. Like they had some reshoots or something like that.
0: Well, or, you know, it might just be the characters cleaned up for the parade.
1: That's possible too.
0: I think what was nice about them in that movie is they weren't just let's have these two muscle guys pop up for a second here and there. They were a full part of the ensemble. Mm -hmm. They ran around with everyone. They bounced off of everyone. They had their own specific bits. Like, I still love the bit where they're telling Albert in the car about that whole accident where the guy got sliced in half and they're getting into all the gory details and they're constantly going back and forth.
1: Yeah. Yeah, this is the first time chronologically where you really get to see the charisma that they have. Yeah. First off, it's the first time they're really allowed to act, but it's also they're just having so much fun. They're not in it long. They're never the focus as much as some of the other characters in that ensemble, but they do steal a lot of the scenes that they're in.
0: Yeah, and it's nice that... Not only is this the first time we fully get to see them as performers... But they are playing actual characters. right? Again, I love how they fit into everything. Again, like I love them leading everyone through an exercise routine. I love, again, Mr. T and them smashing into that farmhouse.
1: I was going to say that's probably one of my favorite bits. Sorry, ma'am. Wrong house. <laughs> Three of the biggest guys in that movie and they all just smash through a house.
0: I'm so glad that there's a clip of that on YouTube because I do revisit that clip. <laughs>
1: That is one of the bits I had to rewatch when I was skimming through the film the other day.
0: If this is their first big opportunity to do something, I think it's a really good one. And I saw an interview where they talk about how, sadly, I haven't found any of the history about like how they became involved, how Joel Schumacher first became aware of them.
1: They did say in one of the interviews, Joel Schumacher had seen them on the Regis Philbin show. He was like, I want to write you guys apart for this movie. Mm. He cast them in mind for those roles. That was their big break.
0: It's fascinating that that first big moment in their career was also happening during Joel Schumacher taking his first big steps. Because again, this is a spinoff of Schumacast. We've covered everything up to the end of the 80s. This is our little break before we get into the 90s, where again, this was Joel Schumacher's second theatrical film. Yeah, And so he was still finding his footing in the industry. And again, that he was giving this guy a chance. Again, this was one of Adam Baldwin's first big roles where he's the lead. Early Mr. T, this is like peak Mr. Mr. T. This came out like right around that time when people were still learning who Mr. T was. Right. Again, Joel was really good at just having his foot on the edge of pop culture and being like, hey, this looks like an interesting thing that's rising up. Let's see if we can help that.
1: Yeah. And I think he used them really well. Yeah. I'm glad that he did.
0: But yeah. I'm, I'm glad that that was a good springboard for us doing this series too. And then, almost a year later, again that's surprising. It took a while for them to like fully catch on after that. But again, it's like you gotta soak in. Mm-hmm. I think part of that again is they hadn't fully settled on their more iconic look yet, right? Which they're only a couple of years away from. Mm-hmm. In September 30th, 1984, they were in the season three premiere episode, a feature length episode of Knight Rider titled "Night of the Drones." It's an episode where Michael Knight is investigating a mystery involving drones, like radio-operated vehicles, very poorly designed radio boomboxes that turn into robots, and it all ties into this whole heist to steal computer chips from a thing. Yeah. What did you think of the episode, Knight of the Drones?
1: I didn't care for it that much. I like parts of it, but part of it is I always loved Kit. I never really cared about Knight Rider the show.
0: Yeah, And the music. Yeah. The music
1: yeah. is pretty awesome too. I will give you that. I've never been a big fan of Hasselhoff. I thought that the actual story was a little overly convoluted.
0: It didn't need to be a two hour episode.
1: No. I like Jim Brown as one of the convicts yep. that is helping the main bad guy. He was charismatic. Yeah. But ah, the rest of it, I'll just be honest, the barbarians were one of the best parts of it.
0: Yeah. yeah it's a pretty typical upset. It was mildly diverting. It's <laughs> the best way I could put it. 80s episodic TV, there's nothing wrong with that format, but a lot of it was just churned out quick and cheap. There's no reason why this needed to be a two-part feature-length season premiere because it's just a very weak, tepid heist story. The villains aren't interesting. I mean, a couple of the people that they hire for the heist are interesting, like Jim Brown and then I can't remember the the Asian man. He was at least a good performer. And I remember that actor because he was in Megaforce and he played the Bruce Lee parody in Kentucky Fried movie.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: But the main villains themselves are not that interesting. The plot is not that interesting. There's this whole subplot of the woman engineer of kit who michael always has this kind of will they won't they tension with has left the team and this is them trying to get her back like i don't care
1: yeah. Plus, they had a cool concept. Like, okay, this is the bad guys with their own version of Kit, because they have this drone car. The
0: whole drones thing was such an afterthought. And
1: they blow up Kit.
0: That was a good twist. That was a good that twist. That was a good...
1: I didn't expect to see that. It's been so long. I forgot that they had given Kit an upgrade in yeah. the third season, but it was so lackluster in its execution.
0: And then the boombox transformers, <laughs> yes. where he also has these radio-controlled robots that people will bring in disguised as a radio, and then it'll turn in. Into a robot and do some kind of sabotage it was the cheapest lousiest it would literally be like the boombox would unfold in half and just be a square with two little arms and legs that don't do anything and ahead for no reason. Yeah. The funny thing, I actually read the script of this episode before I watched it because I'm me and it was available. Uh-huh. They're describing it as like it's sound wave and it is like stealthily dodging around and climbing things and it's like a fully automated. Nope, we don't get that.
1: Admittedly, it's 1980s TV budget.
0: It's your season three premiere. Come on. <laughs> At least they could have done like a marionette, something that's more animated. Yeah. Could have done a hand puppet that would have been better than this.
1: They could have taken a Transformer because that would have been the right era and actually probably have done something with somebody just off screen moving it.
0: And so the Barbarian Brothers in this one are literally the villain's goons. Yeah. They're the ones who just walk around, look intimidating. They get into a few fistfights with Michael. They kill a few people. There's the good twist where he needs to get information for them. So he lures them over and electrocutes. I think it's Kit is electrifying a fence that they've grabbed onto. And so you get to see the Barbarian Brothers acting as though they're being electrocuted while giving information.
1: Like I said, they're the best part of this episode in a lot of ways. I mean, at least their most amusing part of the episode. When they're trying to get a map from this old Chinese man. One of them, I can never tell them apart. I don't know if it was Peter or David.
0: It's probably David. I noticed David had most of the speaking role in that one. Okay. I can tell them apart now. I don't
1: <laughs> but he just grabs them and he's just like, you as he's squeezing him. But it looks like he's just trying to give them like an awkward Heimlich maneuver.
0: Yeah. Imagine if he had been doing that documentary. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I like that they are played up as intimidating because they are strong. I do like the fight with Michael where it's like he's punching and kicking them and they're just kind of like, really? Yeah. (laughs) And literally the hero can't beat them. So he literally just has to jump over a wall and run away.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And they got to show off the new abilities of Kit.
0: They're basically your typical Bond movie henchmen. Right. They just kind of walk around. They look intimidating. The villain's always putting them down and talking about them like they're her dogs. hmm What I like is that they get lines. They are intimidating. They do have a good presence. And yeah, there's the two scenes. The one where they're getting electrocuted, where it's silly, but it, they actually do act. Mm-hmm. And then the scene where he then has to interrogate them in the prison cell. They're pissed off and then suddenly I camera wait as he pulls out something that like terrifies them.
1: As it's been a couple of weeks since I watched that episode, so I can't yeah. recall.
0: <laughs> but they actually do give a good performance. Again, what was fascinating about that script that I read? They weren't in it. Huh. They were added to the episode. So the script was rewritten to incorporate them.
1: Kind of makes sense, though, because that's the Barbarian Brothers, that might be part of their issue is the fact that you really can't plan around, these guys aren't available, so let's get another set of identical bodybuilding twins.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. December 21st, 1984, that's when we had the Gary Marshall film Flamingo Kid and it's worth pointing out Gary Marshall, the producer creator of Happy Days. (laughs) Flamingo Kid, it's Matt Dillon in the 1950s, a kid from Brooklyn, kind of tired of living in the dumps. He's really good at playing cards and he gets a job at a country club where he starts falling under the thrall of this aging card shark. What'd you think of the movie Flamingo Kid?
1: I didn't like it, to be Mm -hmm. honest. It's a coming-of-age story, but I just didn't find the character all that compelling. I thought he was kind of an ass, to be honest, Mm -hmm. which part of the story is that he grows and becomes a little bit better, but I just found it mostly boring. It's not very interesting. I watched it a couple weeks ago, and I honestly can't remember too much of it other than what you just described.
0: Yeah. I really liked Hector Elizondo as his dad.
1: Yeah, he was good.
0: And they got into this whole thing about how the kid wants wealth and opulence and the dad's like, I'm happy being a plumber. I have everything I want. It's the typical thing, but I thought they delivered it well. But it's not a bad movie, but it's a very dry movie. It's a very simple story. It's very just little vignettes almost. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them are just very quietly funny. And there's nothing that's really like laugh out loud hilarious. And it is just, I want to say it's almost a predecessor to the modern day mumblecore movement. Yeah. It's comedy that's just played very quiet and awkwardly built around very simple scenarios and just kind of awkward character studies. Mm-hmm. It's not bad for that, but you know, there's reasons why I've never gotten too deep into the mumblecore movement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, it was kind of a boring movie. But it's not bad. It was great seeing like some actors early on like Bronson Pin show and yeah, the guy who played the Indian man in Short Circuit Oh, being just as unconvincing at playing an Italian from the Bronx. Was that him? I didn't even realize that. That was him as his flashy friend. And Richard Crenna was nice as the old card shark. But yeah, it's not that it's a bad movie. It just didn't really do much for me. And then the Barbarian Brothers, they only have a bit part because it's set around a beachside country club. Everyone's in swimsuits, there's pools and everything, and the Barbarian Brothers play a pair of lifeguards. Yeah. And that's about it. (laughs) Pretty much. They were introduced. Yeah, and by the way, these two guys are our lifeguards, and they're like standing there flexing while up in their lifeguard stations, and it's like, oh, they're going to have fun with these two. Nope. Yeah. They pop up a couple of times, and that's it. I don't even want to say they're part of the ensemble. No. It's like the exact opposite of DC Cab. They're literally just there to look at for a quick second every now and then.
1: Right. Even when I'm not enjoying something, like usually the Barbarian Brothers make it better. They were in it so little, they really didn't even get to make that sort of impact.
0: And then moving on to 1985. Now, by 1985, the Barbarian Brothers were already starting to build up a bit more of a media presence. They were starting to do more interviews on shows. And they had already started working on the Barbarians. But before we get there, there was another show called Hollywood Beat, which was literally Aaron Spelling trying to cash in on the success of Miami Vice. Poorly. Hmm. The Barbarian Brothers were set to be regulars on the show. And I don't know if they left or they were let go, but they were replaced singularly by John Matusak, who's the guy who played Sloth in Goonies. Okay, A football player turned actor. Mm -hmm. I looked at a couple episodes, kind of sped through them because they were really bad. It's a terrible ripoff of Miami Vice. Basically, our two lead cops, at the end of every episode, would just go and hit the gym where they'll just talk about the lessons they learned each day. As we all do. And they'll get some friendly advice from the bodybuilder who owns the gym. And that was supposed to be the Barbarian Brothers... But I'm guessing, I don't know if the Barbarian Brothers left the show, but if we go with the theory that they may have, I can see why, because that's kind of a thankless role where you don't get to be a part of the broader episodes. Yeah. You're literally like the bartender that shows up every time they go to a bar once per episode. Well,
1: especially if they had the Barbarians either in the works or already made, they yeah. probably were like, we can do better than just be the guys who show up at the end of the show. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The thing about John Matusak is he was not a bad performer himself. He's someone who, in his own right, you could almost do a little mini-series looking at his career because he had a couple low-budget action movies where he got to be the lead. He had supporting roles here and there. He got to play all these interesting things. And then he suddenly died of a heart attack at age 38. Mm-hmm. And again, this is the guy who played Sloth in Goonies, which is one of the most iconic roles around, but nobody recognized him. Well, right. He's actually going to be in Ghost Rider, too. Not to jump too far ahead, but do you remember in Ghostwriter, the big action star that the reporter is trying to do an article about?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: That's him. Oh, cool. That was one of his last movies. It's one of those ones where I'm kind of glad it didn't happen for him because it's something that would have probably locked their career up for a year. And the show only lasted one year. It got canceled. Right. And again, this is a year where they were already prepping up for it, And that's going to lead us to March 20th, 1987, though I believe it had already screened in Europe before then, of The Barbarians. Yeah. Looking back, are you still fond of the Barbarians?
1: I am. I have trouble picking favorites, but I do love that film. And it's probably one of the better made films that the Barbarian Brothers did, at least as their star vehicles.
0: And it's a perfect introduction.
1: Yeah, it's a perfect introduction. It does some decent action. I mean, it's definitely cheap, but it actually has some moments where like, that's actually pretty cool. And it's a good introduction to the charisma and talents of the barbarians. This is where I can see why they got their own film, because they just leap off the screen.
0: You can see why they were cast in it, and you can see why they continued to make films after it. Right. They're not just the physiques. They're also the personalities. And the Barbarian Brothers are at their best when you just have them both in a shop playing off of each other. Yeah. They could be in the background just finding little things to fiddle with and they're fun to watch.
1: Yeah. And I noticed that like on the Alamo Drafthouse interview that you sent me, mm-hmm. they talked about how they had improvised most of that film. And that was why it was one of their favorites that they've done because they're like, yeah, we're not going to do the script. And the Italian directors were like, whatever. They also got to play around with the horses and all the cool costumes and everything. And so they kind of enjoyed doing that. And of course, it was their first starring role. Yeah. So I think there's a reason why that's their favorite. And I can see it. Like I said, I hate to pick favorites, but it really holds up really well, I think.
0: I have two films that I would be like, if you've never heard of the Barbarian Brothers, here's what you need to see to learn who the Barbarian Brothers were. This is one where there's a few content issues, like particularly with some of the treatment of women and dancing around issues of rape, where it would depend on who the person is. Mm -hmm. And we'll get to Think Big, but Think Big is the other one where I think it's a little more widely accessible. Yeah. You couldn't have asked for a more perfectly fitting star vehicle for their first film as leads. And again, that you get that whole mythic backstory with the two brothers growing up in bondage, all of the fun shenanigans, the fantasy adventure, the costumes, the sets, all the humor and jokes. And again, it's a very vaudevillian thing, which again, goes back to their stage days. And it's just such a fun
1: movie. I agree 100%.
0: I found an interesting interview when Barbarians was coming out. Now, the thing about Barbarians, it was a very limited release. This was still that era in the 80s where a film would travel from theater to theater to theater mm-hmm. so that you would only make a few prints of a film. And then you would literally just play for a week in this theater and then we would move that print over to play it for a week in another theater. And the Barbarian Brothers were almost the single handed promotional machine <laughs> for that because they printed up their own flyers and would go around towns in their giant muscle car and just pass out flyers to everyone. The film did pretty decently. I mean, not huge, but it did decently enough given how limited of a run it had. And what was interesting to read was it was planned to be the first in a trilogy.
1: <laughs> I want to see that trilogy.
0: Yeah, I would love to find out more of like how far did that actually get in development or was it just an idea? And then around this time, they had also written their own screenplay for a film they wanted to star in called Better Than One.
1: Yeah, I heard them reference that in at least one interview. Yeah. That made me intrigued. They made it sound like it had been made, but I couldn't find any reference to it.
0: It's one of those ones where I don't know if that evolved into one of the films that they made, because they don't have any writing credits on any of the other ones. And I know like Think Big originated with a different film production, so it had different people in the story. Double Trouble started as a Kurt Wimmer script, so I know it didn't start there. Twin Sitters, maybe? I don't know if maybe this evolved into one of those, or if this was just a completely separate project that just never got off the ground.
1: Yeah, and it's hard to say.
0: You know, as a screenplay collector, if there's a draft floating around, boy, would I love to read it.
1: I'd be curious as well.
0: <laughs> right after the Barbarians, they had a brief appearance. We cover this on the Lost Boys episode, the Joel Schumacher music video for In Excess' Devil Inside.
1: Yep. Blink and you'll miss them, but yeah. they're there.
0: And we forgot to mention that the Barbarians is where they finally debuted their kind of long feathered hair look.
1: Yeah, they looked a lot more Fabio the feathered look, clean mm-hmm. shaven, all that.
0: Knight Riders, they still had that kind of short, still like shoulder length, but it was still like not teased out. Right. And then Flamingo Kid, they're wearing hats the entire time. So you can't tell what their hair is. Mm -hmm. But yeah, yeah. They just had that one brief appearance in Devil Inside. We've talked about that video. Again, you go listen to our Last Boys episode. And then this was an interesting one. This is one I'd heard about for a long time. And then lo and behold, perfect timing. It pops up on YouTube. In April 25th, 1989, they starred in the TV movie pilot, The Road Raiders which was done by Glenn Larson, who was, of course, the guy who did Knight Rider. Mm -hmm. God, it's the Dirty Dozen meets McHale's Navy meets Road Warrior (laughs) meets... It's a big mishmash of ideas, but it's basically Bruce Boxleitner is... He's an AWOL expat in the Philippines. The U.S. military is evacuating from the Philippines with the emergence of the Japanese Navy, he, in order to avoid getting arrested, needs to get out of there. Either he's going to be stuck behind enemy lines or he's going to be arrested. So he needs to get onto a plane, and it's a plane that just happens to be covering a whole bunch of convicts and rejects from the military that crashes. So this entire group of rejects is stuck behind enemy lines, and they decide, well, you know what, if we're going to be stuck here, let's do what we can to take a stand. What did you think about Road Raiders?
1: As a pilot, because I would have been about nine years old when that came out, I could see that would have been a show I probably would have watched if it had gone to series. Well, looking at it today, there's a lot of, I don't want to say issues. It's just things that don't capture my attention.
0: Wait, did you have a problem with the character schizoid? I can't see why you would have a problem with the character (laughs) schizoid.
1: Yeah, there's, (laughs) yeah. I mean, just the whole setup, the idea behind it might have been interesting if we got to see a little bit more of what a typical episode would look like but I just wasn't really grabbed today. But like I said, I could see nine-year-old me probably would have liked it quite a bit because there's just a lot of zany humor there to keep my attention, enough action to keep me going. Yeah, I would have liked it then. I don't really care for it a whole lot now.
0: And did you recognize who played Einstein, the demolitions expert?
1: That would be Evil Ed, wouldn't it? Yes. It took me a minute. It was like, that voice is so familiar. Like I didn't recognize the face, but then I was like- Oh, yes.
0: It's the Evil Ed Barbarian Brothers crossover that could have been further explored as a TV series.
1: I never expected that to happen, but now I demand that we go back in time and make more of this happen and make it blatantly that this is actually Evil Ed.
0: No, I like that he's a different enough character.
1: No, I agree. He was actually one of the better character actors in the episode.
0: I loved this this was entirely my jam. (laughs) I mean, I think there's some questionable bits, particularly the portrayal of Tia (laughs) Carrera as an island native, but God, I loved how this jumbled mishmash of a story still kind of miraculously came together. By the time you get to a time where they're driving a toy line of vehicles cobbled together from tanks and airplanes...
1: That was pretty awesome.
0: That's when you know exactly the pitch that sold Glenn A. Larson on this.
1: Yeah, and that's what I was meaning when I, I, I kind of wanted to see what a typical episode would be like. Because kind of like how Night Rider, like the car steals the show. When you see those vehicles, they are really cool. Yeah. I kind of want to see what else they could do with these vehicles. But it's all like right at the very end. <laughs> Most of the movie is them putting it together.
0: Hey, you get to see a barbarian brother behind the wheels of a monster Truck that he's driving while operating a Gatling gun. <laughs> I'm fine. <laughs> Fair enough. But no, I love Bruce Boxleitner's character in this and the whole kind of emotional journey he goes on of being a Han Solo style con artist and scam man who has to end up rallying the troops and save the day. I love Leslie Jordan. He's one of my favorite character actors. He was the petite little guy with the deep southern accent who was the Navy man. Mm. I love him. He's one of my favorite. Again, Stephen Jeffries, the Barbarian Brothers. So many of these other great character actors as wrong. We got to mention Schizoid here. Schizoid is played by the man who played the blind man in Robin Hood, Men in Tights, and it's about as sensitive of a portrayal. It's a guy who, when he hears a bell ring, switches between an absolutely cowardly pacifist deserter and the most macho, trigger happy gunman around. And I love that the entire climax of the episode led up to him having to save the day. T- it's such a wrong, wrong character, and they play it in a way that I still can't help but be entertained by because it. it's so ridiculous. Yeah. It goes so far.
1: The idea behind it, like I said, would have gone over a lot better with me when I was nine and not necessarily as sensitive to some of the mental health issues.
0: Yeah. But it's like, if you're going to go offensive, just go all in and just make it as ridiculous as you can to the point where it's so separated from I'm not recommending it because of that.
1: No, no. And I get it. There are bits that I really liked. I actually had to stop and check and make sure that it wasn't Michael Winslow, who was Bruce Boxleitner's best friend, because they both were African-American men who were doing funny noises.
0: And sound effects, yeah.
1: Yeah. And it was right about that same time that Police Academy and all that was coming out.
0: We didn't really need his radio play of all racial Japanese. Humor that was, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's another one that didn't age well, but there are parts of it I liked a lot. It's just not the type of show that I think now I would get into much, but nine year old me would have loved it.
0: I think it helps that I'm still in touch with my nine year old me, even though neither me nor my nine year old me wants to watch Happy Days. <laughs> yeah, this is like if you're gonna jumble together a mashup of other movies, at least do it in a really entertaining way. And I thought this was really entertaining. Mm-hmm. The characters were fun, the script was lively. I like the old Hogan's Heroes, Mikhail Navy, ragtag group of rejects, and I thought this was a good ragtag group of rejects. And yeah, I love, again, that it just went so crazy with the climax of, we're going to graft planes and tanks together and just drive around. Yeah. And the Barbarian Brothers play, I can't remember what their characters' names are, but they play two gigantic terrifyingly muscular and bearded with their long hair, Mm -hmm. guys who everyone is terrified of because they're basically like animals locked up in chains. They're kind of like Riddick at the beginning of Pitch Black. Of course, once they break free, they're just part of the ensemble. But their gimmick is they speak in a kind of offset unison where they say the exact same thing, but like two seconds apart, so you get an echo effect. Yeah. So what do you think about them in this one?
1: They were a lot of fun. They were definitely a highlight. Something that I was already on the verge of liking, even if I didn't love it. I did love when the plane crashes. And they're like, who landed this? You know, everyone's like terrified and pointing to uh, Bruce Boxleitner and they're just like, good job. You know, (laughs) good saving us or whatever. You know, it was like, they're just always fun though. Whenever they're on screen, these brothers just capture my attention.
0: It's not the biggest part. No. But it's a fun part. You can see why they would have signed on to this even as they had begun their film career. Mm -hmm. It's one where had this gone to series, I could see them, you know, like every now and then getting a good feature episode.
1: Yeah, I think probably like Einstein and Schizoid and some of the other like ones were probably going to be more the regular supporting cast and they would probably just be mostly sight, you know, like.
0: Well, what's nice about an ensemble like this is you create a great group of characters and then you'll have episodes where it's like, here's the barbarians and Einstein paired up. Here's Einstein and Schizoid paired up for a story. You know, here's yeah. the captain and the barbarian brothers paired up for a story. I love the um, undercover spy woman who's disguised as a nun. You know, here's her teamed up with Einstein. Here's her teamed up with the barbarian. It's one of those ones where you can get a lot of good play just out of mashing these characters together for team ups Mm -hmm. and then have occasional episodes where it's like, here's our big full ensemble or here's a specific individual highlight. You know, it's a good enough ensemble. You could have actually, I think, gotten a decent amount of play out of it.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think that if it had gotten a series, I think it might have affected quite a bit of their career, but I think they may have gotten a little bit more longevity, out of it just because they would have gotten a chance to show off their acting over time as opposed to just being in these small bit roles here and there.
0: Well, and what's interesting is our next two that we're going to get to, Ghost Rider and Think Big, we'll talk about them in a second, but both of those had already been filmed by the time this aired, and then they wouldn't have another credit until 1992, so it might be that they had already planned to take a little time off to do a series. Maybe. Moving to December 1989, that's when we get Ghost Rider. About a female journalist who decides to take some time off to get away from construction in her apartment building. So she goes to a house that her mother still owns that used to belong to her aunt, who was basically Marilyn Monroe, who supposedly died of a suicide overdose, but still lingers around as a ghost who can interact a surprising amount with reality as they uncover this whole political conspiracy where she was actually assassinated. Yep. So, J.D., what would you think about Ghost Rider?
1: I hated it. (laughs) It is like the type of humor in it failed on every level with me. (laughs) Maybe not every level. There are maybe a few bits that made me laugh. But for the most part, I just didn't think it was very funny. And the story was so rote. None of the cast really stood out other than the barbarians. And that's only because I know them as the barbarians. Save for one other, which we'll probably get to in just a second here. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I didn't care for it.
0: Yeah, it's a very cheap movie. It's a very simplistic movie. The guy who made it Kenneth Hall, he had done some special effects leading up to this. Like he had done some effects on like one of the Ghoulies movies and the original Critters he became part of the Charles Band Full Moon set. Like he's the guy who created the Puppet Master series. Mm. Yeah, most of his stuff is just cheap schlock. And this movie was produced by David DeCoteau. Are you familiar with David decouto No. He is writer, director, producer. Has made literally hundreds of disposable schlock movies, spanning everything. Like he does horror, sci-fi, queer cinema, romance, children's movies. He did the infamous 1313 series, which I think ran for. 16 movies. He's the guy who wrote, directed and produced A Talking Cat.
1: <laughs> yeah, that one. Okay.
0: David day is a terrible filmmaker who literally just churns out crap super cheap and super fast. I didn't mind Ghostwriter. I thought it was charming at times. It was amusing at times, but it's just very simplistic, very basic humor. There's barely any plot. It's kind of a very in poor taste plot when you actually think about it. What's fascinating is the two actresses who star in this are actual sisters. Oh, are they? Both the woman and the ghost. They were both big soap opera stars at the time.
1: Okay, yeah. Audrey Landers and Judy Landers, yeah.
0: When we first saw the Marilyn Monroe-ish character, I can't remember the character's name, she looked so similar. I was like, wait, is that the same actress? Is she literally just playing against herself? But then suddenly they were both in a two-shot, and then I looked it up. It's like, oh, they're sisters. Okay.
1: yeah. Did you notice who played BJ?
0: I didn't recognize him. Who is he?
1: He is Joey Travolta.
0: Oh, fuck. That was Joey Travolta.
1: Yes. That was the one I was talking about. Like, he's not good. Oh, God, is he not good.
0: Oh, but he was entertaining. He was amusing.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, he's having fun with the role, which is probably what more than anyone else can say in this movie, because I yeah. think everyone's kind of just either very rote acting, like they're just nailing the lines. Some people just seem like they were falling asleep, to be honest, or maybe I was just falling asleep.
0: <laughs> and honestly, if you have to resort to Jeff Conway as your love interest, just maybe don't even try. <laughs> Yeah, that was pretty sad. But it's an amusing movie. It's a mildly charming movie. I didn't hate watching it. I probably am never going to watch it again. I don't recommend it. But I don't hate that it exists. It's a film that felt like everyone was having kind of a fun time making it. Mm. And that can win me over a lot. But... It's so simplistic. It's like their comedy bits are a ghost is drinking a drink out of a cup and is using a straw. So the fluid is going down and someone at the bar looks at it and does a bug eyed reaction and then looks at their own drink and says, no, I'm done for the night. And it's like, yep.
1: Yeah, it's that level of humor pretty much through an entire thing.
0: It's the most basic you can get. Right. And then the Barbarian Brothers played again, going back to their Knight Rider routine. They're just the villain's henchmen. Right. What did you think about their performance in this one? Were they trying to do like a Schwarzenegger thing? I think they were just doing like a deep, yeah, boss, we'll go
1: get them. We'll go take care of this. It was like a weird, to me, it sounded like they were trying to do some sort of vaguely European accent.
0: No, I think it was just doing a heavy voice. Uh, It was cartoony, but yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, their voices are so animated to begin with, like just trying to cover it up that much. This was probably like my least favorite thing where they actually got like a actual role. They weren't bad in it per se, but like you said, there's just the goons.
0: I'll disagree with you. I think it's better than the dick at the beach thing.
1: <laughs> well, that's what I mean when I say giving yeah. a starring role. Like at least these are actual characters, even if they're just ultimately just our goons. They actually do have things to do as opposed to just be standing there, like in the dick on the beach. I think that really kind of hinders any fun in the performance. Just because of the weird voice choices that they did.
0: I kind of liked it because you could just tell they were just doing something for fun.
1: (laughs) I mean, knowing what they are, that's probably what they were doing. But it doesn't work. Yeah, it didn't work for me.
0: And the other thing is, I love that a film is trying to convince me that Jeff Conway can knock out one of the Barbarian Brothers with a single punch. Yeah. No.
1: That didn't work.
0: (laughs) Yeah, lost me. The best way to sum up this film is, watching it was not a painful experience, but I sighed a lot. And not wistfully.
1: It was one of those (laughs) things where I just couldn't help but like grab my phone (laughs) and just play a game while listening in the background. I mean, I would look up and be like, okay, they're still doing stuff at the club. Okay. Uh, All right. Yeah. It's just a lot of gimmicky gags that didn't work for me.
0: So then March 1990, though I should point out a couple of their films here actually premiered like four months earlier at an Italian film festival. So this one actually did premiere in October 1989, but it didn't actually get released on video until March 1990 Is Think Big. And I should point out that from here on, none of the Barbarian Brothers starring films were released theatrically. They were all straight to video. Okay. Think Big. Again, we did an episode on it, but looking back on it, do you enjoy it?
1: Yeah. This and Barbarians are probably tied, if I had to make my favorites. Admittedly, a lot of that is nostalgia for me. I do remember watching this as a teenager. Mm-hmm. I remember enjoying it quite a bit as a teenager. I still laugh at it now. I think there's a great supporting cast and the Barbarians are just-
0: It's a perfect spotlight for
1: him. Yeah, it's a perfect spotlight for their comedic talents and what else is there to say but chicken bone, chicken bone, lucky lucky chicken bone. Yes.
0: <laughs> Again, it's not only a great spotlight, But again, it's this one you could show a kid. Yeah. This is one where if you have someone who is going to have issues with some of the content problems of the barbarians, you could show them this. Yeah. Where probably the worst thing is, oh, ha ha, David Carradine is going to die of radiation poisoning. (laughs) What? Yeah. But the movie earns that.
1: (laughs) right. Right.
0: It's a really fun, it's not too silly, like, again, like we'll get to with a couple of the other ones. It's so accessible. It's just, it's a really nice, simple plot. I actually really like the plot of the girl who invented the remote control that can turn on and off electric gadgets now. It becomes this big chase involving her and they use the gadget and that crossing over with these two barbarian brothers who have to make it to this certain place a certain time or they're going to lose their truck. It's a really fun road trip movie.
1: Yeah. This is one of the best showcases for their charisma. Again, I I keep using that word because it just shows it off so well because I love them. Yeah, you're probably right. Like, if you had to show one film to somebody and say, this is what they're all about.
0: And again, it's kind of a shame that, I mean, we'll get to Twin Sitters, but I think the Barbarian Brothers would have had a really great career had they been in more projects that were aimed at children. Yeah. Could you see, like, the Barbarian Brothers teaming up with Saban and doing a fun TV series, you know? Or, you know, again, John Paragon, who's going to do their next two films, was one of the main creative people who did Pee-wee's Playhouse. Imagine if he had gone off and set up a TV series with the Barbarian Brothers, like a fun Saturday morning Barbarian Brothers TV. Series.
1: Yeah, I can see that.
0: You have more films like this where you can have fun and big action and spectacle and your goofy humor and kids can enjoy it. I think the biggest audience for the Barbarian Brothers is 10 year olds. Yeah. And I don't say that as a knock. I think a lot of their work still does play to that audience really well and they're so entertaining to watch. Again, I don't mean just looking at them physically. They're so entertaining to watch all the fun business and acting and performance that they do.
1: I agree. They're just entertaining and this is one of the highlights to show it off.
0: Oh, God, imagine if they had been like co-stars in an Ernest movie. See, they would have been perfect. That would have been, yeah. The other thing about the Barbarian Brothers, especially once they got into their fashion style, if you even see their interviews, Twin Sitters is where it's like the fashion just explodes. But they were already developing that visual style to their own presence by the end of the 80s. They would have fit in perfectly with something like Ernest.
1: yeah. That sort of 90s humor where it's very broad and over the top, but also has like a kind of sweet innocence to it. Mm -hmm. That would have been perfect. I could see other projects like that that would have worked really well, but Ernest would have been perfect. Yeah.
0: That entire era of that style of kids movies where it was very loud, it was very garish, but there's ways you can do loud and garish well that are still really entertaining. Mm -hmm. And the Barbarian Brothers developed a very loud garish style and made it work. I wish that they had gone more in that direction and, and it continued in that direction. But I think it's also worth pointing out as we get up into the 90s that they've since been open about the fact that they did start going heavily into drugs mm-hmm. and cocaine, you know, especially. And of course, they were surprisingly, shockingly doing steroids.
1: I, I you can't see it, but this is my shocked face.
0: Yes. I understand why we're almost near the end of their career because, again, they were almost 40 years old by this point. And a lot of people who go that heavily into steroids and bodybuilding, they don't always make it to age 40. Mm-hmm. Even if they aren't going to, like, die of a massive heart attack, that could just have a massive toll on your joints, on your ligaments. And I think they were probably at a point where they needed to stop their career in order to save their lives. And, and again, I think what we're going to learn, that's what happened. Right. Anyways, February 14th, 1992, that's when we had Double Trouble. Yep. Did you enjoy that one?
1: I did. I think it's probably the one of the weakest of their repertoire. They're fantastic. There's a lot of great bits, and you will never, ever get me to say anything bad about Roddy McDowell, ever. There's another Fright Night Mm tie-in coincidence. I think not.
0: Ooh. Oh, man. Fright Night 3 starring the Barbarian Brothers.
1: Yes. See? That would
0: have been perfect.
1: But overall, the film... Part of it was because it was them trying to play a little bit more serious. And I don't think that's where their strengths lie. Yeah, When they're being silly in that movie, they're great. When they're trying to just be like tortured cop or conflicted thief, it doesn't work as well.
0: Yeah, they don't fit the slick early 90s action thriller. Right. I think part of the problem was they took a slick early 90s action thriller script. Again, this writer went on to do more films of that vein where, again, it's like a cop on one side, a thief on the other, they're secretly brothers and they have to team up to save the day, is a plot you would find in like dozens and dozens of other early 90s action movies. Mm -hmm. Not only do they not fit that style, but I also don't think John Paragon, the director, fit that style. I think whenever the film would get sillier and get goofier everything would start to mesh and there's sequences in that movie that are great
1: yeah i still laugh at the scene where they like go into the car and realize that he had ripped off the steering wheel it's just a great comic beat the promise, then they go into bits about diamond stealing and all this stuff that it wasn't that long ago that we watched that film. And I can't tell you what the main plot was.
0: Yeah, it's the most generic early 90s action thriller script you can get. And there are times when you can take a script like that and still elevate it by style or by cast. Again, I would compare it very much to like Bad Boys. Yeah. Again, one of the most basic generic early 90s script. Like, what's the plot of Bad Boys? I can't even remember. exactly. <laughs> <It's been> some- <laughs> what's the plot of Beverly Hills Cop? Um, like not that it's a cop who goes to Beverly Hills, but what's the actual crime plot?
1: Right. Again, couldn't tell you.
0: See, again, it's like you can take a very simple thriller plot and find ways to elevate it. This is not one that does. And in fact, it feels like the good bits of the movie are when they just kind of stop trying and do something else. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think as you get further into the movie, they do that more and more often. So I think the film gets better as it goes along. I didn't dislike watching it, but it's the one that I feel the least compelled to watch again.
1: Yeah. Again, I still liked it. It's just not something that I loved as much as some of the other stuff that they did.
0: And again, the Barbarian Brothers, they play so well when you put them on camera together to have a film where it's all about dividing them. Like either one is – they're off on their own or just the way the film is shot where it's a shot of one cut to a shot of the other doesn't have the same balance as when you just put a camera on both of them together. Right. I don't blame them for the film not working. It's just not a film no. that plays to their strengths. Exactly. Exactly. So then August 26, 1994, we get to Natural Born Killers. Had you ever seen Natural Born Killers before, JD? Yes, I have. What'd you think of it?
1: I liked it. It's been a while since I watched it. I saw it long after its heyday. So some of its commentary on media and stuff like that, it seemed a little dated to me at the time. I also think that Robert Downey Jr.'s Australian accent isn't that great. It's a good film. It's not something I really think about too much anymore.
0: What's fascinating is given how much of a big cultural explosion that it was when it came out, I've never seen it. Mm. I've always had kind of a on-again, off-again relationship with Quentin Tarantino, where there's periods where his work really bounces well for me, and it's like I go check out a few of his things and I like it, but then it starts to grate on me, and then I start to become annoyed by him. Mm -hmm. I had a period a few years ago where I'm kind of like, you know, let's go back, finally fill in the gaps, check out the ones I haven't seen before, and also read the scripts, because you know, that's what... I do. Mm -hmm. It's shocking. I was not able to find a screenplay for a single Barbarian Brothers movie. Really? God, I would love to find like the original draft of Barbarians or the original draft of any of these and see what they were
1: like. Right. Yeah.
0: But anyways, I got to the first three scripts that he had when he came to Hollywood. He came to Hollywood with Reservoir Dogs, True Romance, and Natural Born Killers. And I read all three and I watched Reservoir Dogs and True Romance. And then the whole Me Too era happened. Right when I was going to get to Natural Born Killers was, again, Tarantino, he hasn't had accusations against him himself, but again, him coming out and saying that, you know, he kept quiet about Harvey Weinstein and didn't take more of a stand, which given things that he did know were going on, Mm -hmm. given his treatments to Uma Thurman in that footage that was released to kill Bill where he set up an accident where she seriously injured herself. Yeah. I've always found him to be a crass, egotistical blowhard. He's very talented, crass, egotistical blowhard. I don't think he's an untalented guy. There's just times when I just need to not deal with Tarantino.
1: I get that. I've seen pretty much all of his films, but he does have his personality quirks that just grate yeah. on me. I'd, I'd rather not listen to him in an interview ever again.
0: Well, and the thing is, a lot of his writing is also still very reflective of that, given the deep conversations that everyone has that are very much expressing his views on this.
1: Yeah. He brings a lot to the table, but I do agree that he can rub you the wrong way, especially if you're not in the right frame of mind for it.
0: Or if you put your foot too close to him.
1: Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah.
0: When I did that, Reservoir Dogs was a very striking script and movie. I don't think it needed to go in certain directions it did with some of the humor that it had. True Romance I loved. I really enjoyed his script and I loved the film even more. And Natural Born Killers was the third one that I got to. And it's like, I like what he's trying to do here. It just doesn't fully click with me. And it's a very have a cake, you need it to type of thing where he's trying to comment on how people celebritize violence and killers... While he's also glorifying these violent killers. Yeah. And he's trying to comment on glorifying while also glorifying. And it just didn't quite work. And I'm still curious to see what Oliver Stone did with it. I'm in a cool period with Tarantino where I'm taking a break.
1: It'll still be there whenever you are ready, if you ever are.
0: I'll get to it at some point.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't blame you if you didn't want to watch it. But it's not something I would really say you need to watch.
0: I still want to see it because I know it was a very important film when it came out in terms of the stylistic approach, Mm -hmm. in terms of the thematic material. It was a very mid-90s movie. Yeah, I want to see it from the historical point of that. But I still also want to wait until I can see it where I'm not just rolling my eyes at every line of dialogue. <laughs> the Barbarian Brothers were in a single sequence in the movie, which was cut out of the finished film, but it appears in the director's cut of the movie, which is what's more widely available on the home video. and TV. So if you saw this film originally in theaters, you wouldn't have seen the Barbarian Brothers. But if you watch it in its more widely available format now, you probably would. Pretty
1: sure that the version I watched must have been a theatrical because I Mm. didn't remember seeing them in it. Now, it's been several years. The Barbarians weren't really on my radar at that time. I kind of forgot about them. Still, it's possible I saw the director's cut and I just forgot about it.
0: Just for anyone who hasn't seen it, you can actually find a clip of the scene on YouTube. Even though I haven't watched the movie, I've seen that. And that scene was in the original Tarantino screenplay. So it was something that he had written in the film to begin with. It's a Mickey and Mallory, the lead couple of the movie, who are on their big killing spree. They have this big thing where they'll go kill a ton of people and then only leave one survivor to tell the tale. Mm-hmm. Well, they have this thing where they break into a Hollywood home and they get these two people on the ground and are cutting off their legs with chainsaws when they realize, Wait, honey, these are the Hun brothers. We love their movies. And he's like, Oh, shit. Sorry. Let me call 911. Yeah. <laughs> So you're having that flashback while also seeing the Hun brothers being interviewed by the director who's played by Jr. It's the two Barbarian brothers sitting in a gym in wheelchairs with each one is missing a leg. I think one of them is missing two legs, the other's missing one. Yeah. And it's mostly David, Paul, again, because David seems to be the one who has the more acting experience, which is interesting. But he has this big speech about how he had pushed himself as far physically as he could achieve. And now he's thankful that these people came and cut off his leg so that now that gives him a challenge that he has to push himself even further to overcome.
1: Yeah, it's a pretty funny bit, all told. I liked it. I like the comedy where it seems like they're just interviewing a couple of weightlifters and then they're like, you describe yourself as fans, but you're also victims. And then they pull back and they see them in the wheelchair and to be honest, my memory of the film is so vague. I honestly wonder if the sense of humor feels a little atonal with the rest of the
0: film. It's a little lighter than the rest of the movie. Yeah. It feels like they're there because Quentin Tarantino likes the Barbarian Brothers movies and wanted to put the Barbarian Brothers in a new movie. Right. Because again, it's like this scene is exactly as scripted. The Hun brothers, two identical twin bodybuilder actors, was how he scripted it in his original script.
1: Yeah. Like I said earlier, there's not exactly a whole bunch of those running around. So it probably had to be a purposeful inclusion. I liked it. It's a funny scene. If nothing else, even if you don't want to watch the entirety of Natural Born Killers, it's actually probably worth just hunt down that scene if you're listening to this podcast.
0: It's a fun scene. And again, kudos to David Paul. Peter Paul, he does get some lines in there too, but a lot of it is David Paul leading into the camera and giving this big monologue and he delivers it. He delivers it really well. Yeah. He gives a good intensity to it. He's very intense while also being very ridiculous in a funny way. Mm-hmm. And yeah, no, I really enjoy the scene. And then that leads us to December 12th, 1995, the end of this period of their career when they start in Twin Sitters.
1: Yeah. Do you enjoy Twin Sitters? I do. It's not as good as Think Big, but it is still an enjoyable. It's just wacky. Yeah. It's just a good, wacky, fun film.
0: It's like we mentioned, it's loud and garish, but they fit loud and garish <laughs>
1: Yeah, it plays more towards our strengths than Double Trouble did, and I think it benefits from that. Some bits I don't think work quite as well, but it mostly holds up as far as if you just want like a wacky 90s film. It's a fine note to end their main oeuvre on.
0: Mm -hmm. I don't agree with it being a fine note to end on because it still leaves me wanting more.
1: Oh yeah, but I mean, they didn't slide down into a bunch of increasingly worse films.
0: If you could slide the Natural Born Killers scene after this... I think that's the note to end their career on.
1: <laughs> yeah, that would have been really nice.
0: Twin centers, it's fun. It's exactly what I described. I want them to make more fun, goofy, over-the-top kids movies. And it's a fun, goofy, over-the-top kids. I would have loved this movie as a kid. Mm-hmm. I mean, as an adult, yeah, it's a bit uneven. Some of the gags don't work. Stories a little thinly held together. But it's fun. It's entertaining. It's amusing. I like that it's twins babysitting twins. Yeah. I like how dark and inappropriate it gets at times in a way that, again, I would have really enjoyed as a kid. And I love the whole rallying of, we got to bring in these other twins and these other twins to act as our backup to go save the twins. And then once (laughs) we're done, we'll all go to the restaurant run by the triplets.
1: Yes. It's fun. It's lighthearted. It's not going to change the world, but it's a fun film. And at least they didn't go into that thing where they're doing just increasingly more schlocky bad films that don't fit their strengths.
0: Yeah, I would rather have another five Twin Sitters than another five Ghostwriters. Exactly. Or another five Double Troubles.
1: Yeah, exactly. Even that, as much as I like a good chunk of Double Trouble, if they had tried to make more of those films...
0: I liked it back when it was a single Trouble, but then they had to add another.
1: Yeah. (laughs) If they had tried to keep doing more films like that, I don't know if we'd still be doing this podcast. I think they may have lost some of the shine that makes them special. Obviously, I would like to have seen more of their career, but Twin Sitters, Think Big, even the Barbarians, that's the direction I would like to have seen them go down more than other things.
0: Yeah. So we, we do have a couple more credits that we'll bring up here, but it's again worth noting this is where their career basically ended for a while. And again, they hit 40 They'd been doing so much steroid and drugs, and again, they've been open about that in more recent interviews too. Mm -hmm. Both of them to this day are still in fantastic shape and still fantastically fit men, but they are much leaner. They have stopped the steroids and growth hormones. I know at least David is now pure vegetarian. Yeah, and that they've been experimenting with how to do that while still being bodybuilders. And again, he's a beautiful man. Yeah, (laughs) they're not as shockingly large, but they're shocking in just how still fit they are. They still have their fashion sense, and they still have their hair, and they're both very good-looking men. But yeah, again, they had to clean up. I know Peter Paul has struggled with mental illness. I don't know what the specifics are, but I know he's had a lot of struggles over the years. Sometimes it's gone well, sometimes it hasn't. David Paul, I know, has been focusing a lot on photography, and even going back to the 80s, he had been doing a lot of photography and photo shoots for bodybuilder magazines, and had built a very strong reputation for very artistic photos, where you know, it's not just a weightlifter in a gym, but he'll actually take them outdoors, set up a kind of whimsical scene to build around and do these very striking black and white photographs that really bring out the details, and he has a website for his book, The Art of Bodybuilding, which is a collection of a lot of his photos, and he's a very good photographer. He's a very, very strong photographer. And it's been nice that he's continued having that career. So 2005 is where they were reunited for an indie film called Sold Out. That's S-O-U-L-E-D Out. Mm -hmm. This is a film that has never been released. As far as I could tell, it wasn't released because it was never fully finished. Like they shot it, but they never got to fully do all the effects and editing. So it never really screened anywhere. But here's the synopsis according to IMDb. Ace Stevens, played by David Paul, is a struggling musician dealing with his midlife woes and balancing his life out as an illegitimate father to a young boy. Once the opportunity arises from an encounter with a soul broker, played by Tony Longo, Ace sells his soul to the devil, played by Peter Paul. Hmm. Soon after, three beautiful vixens, agents for the Reapers, come to take his body away. He cannot live on Earth without a soul. In an effort to get his soul back, he calls on the devil. Unfortunately, the devil has already sold his soul to someone else. (laughs) Breaking his contract, the devil must help Ace find his soul, a journey which goes from soul owner to soul owner. Each person tries on the soul and sells it to someone else for various reasons. Along the way, they pick up a wild-eyed angel played by Gary Busey.
1: Okay.
0: Who joins in the misadventures of a man searching for his soul, his identity, and his heart. So.
1: I want to watch that.
0: Yeah, it sounds like a fun premise for a movie. It sounds like a movie you can make either a really lovable comedy out of or a really bizarre indie art movie out of or...
1: Possibly both.
0: (laughs) You know, David Paul running around with Gary Busey trying to get his soul back from Peter Paul. I'm... Yeah, let's... Yeah, I would have watched that. That's a version of Good Omens I can get behind. (laughs) God, imagine an adaptation of Good Omens where the angel and devil are played by the Barbarian Brothers.
1: Oh, God. Yeah, that would be a completely different thing, but I'd still watch the hell out of it, (laughs) quite literally.
0: But yeah, it's a shame this one's never surfaced, because it's an interesting premise. It's interesting how it breaks the brothers up, so it would largely be David's film with Peter as the antagonist. Mm -hmm. And I like the idea of, it's almost like a road trip movie of having to go from place to place to place to find your soul, and your soul is getting passed around. You can make a really nice comedy out of that.
1: Yeah, it's a better concept than a lot of stuff that we've talked about in this
0: episode. You could also make a terrible movie out of a tube. Right. I haven't even been able to find any clips or a trailer or anything on this one. Nothing ever got out. Mm, that's a shame. Yeah, I would love to see someone resurface it. And if it was just some effects, work and editing that needed to be completed, just, yeah, I would love to get this out there just to see it.
1: Yeah, I agree. If anyone knows anybody, they just want to drop it into a box. Yeah. Like a yeah. drop box that we could watch. Uh, I would yeah. appreciate that.
0: Probably not going to happen. No. (laughs) So then another few years would go by until 2013, where we got Faith Street Corner Tavern, where David Paul was the director and writer, and Peter Paul was the star and cinematographer, which is interesting that he's the cinematographer because David's the photographer. Yeah. The basic plot summary is the surreal tale of a twin and his brother's journey through life's trials and tribulations based on their true life's experiences. It is also the story of the unique friendship of three artists and the power of art and love to redeem the dignity of three outcasts denigrated by an indifferent and hostile society. The three friends make a movie that parallels the story of the redemptive power of art in their outside lives. So, not pretentious at all.
1: No, not autobiographical at all, either. No,
0: no. This film, it was completed, it has screened at several festivals, and there is a trailer available online. But otherwise, the film itself has never been widely released. And I know I did send you the trailer. Yes. What did you think of that?
1: I think it looked cool. I mean, it definitely wasn't what you expect. If you've only watched the Barbarian Brother films, you wouldn't probably think, oh, this is the natural next corner for them to go down. It's definitely a more of an art house film. To be honest, I wasn't sure if it was supposed to be fictional, other than the fact that somebody just says, My official diagnosis of you is you're nuts to Peter Paul.
0: And again, you know, it's playing on his struggles with mental illness.
1: Right. Well, I mean, just the visuals alone were really solid. It's definitely very artsy. All that stuff that you were saying in the synopsis really doesn't come across in the trailer, but it intrigued me. I would like to see that.
0: Yeah, no, we'll put the trailer in the show notes. But yeah, it's interesting because the trailer, if you just watch the trailer, it's basically Peter Paul being interviewed by a psychiatrist and it's this kind of flashy, trippy memories of the past mixed with emotions and imagery and symbolism and and it's a very indie art movie. But that doesn't mean it's bad. I would legitimately be curious to see it because I think the Barbarian Brothers have had enough separation from their past career and their past lives and have done so much to regain their footing that them doing a film that's basically a reflection of looking back, where did we come from? What were we hoping to be? What were we hoping to achieve? Did we do it? No, if not, then how do we pick up the pieces? I could see some really interesting stuff coming out of that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I agree. It's a shame that it's not more widely available. We talked about like the good note to end their career on. Like this sounds like that would be a good way to end their film careers.
0: I wouldn't say it would be like a cool comeback, but it'd be a cool reunion of just, hey, we haven't seen these guys in a while. What have they been up to? And it's like, yeah, hey, here's the thing they made.
1: Yeah, listening to some of the interviews that they've done over the years, they talk about like they had kind of gotten typecast and jaded. So them getting a chance to do something that's uniquely about them, from them, in their own voice. They said it in a few interviews, like, we've never gotten a script that we like. Everything was ultimately was just a paycheck film. Some of them they enjoyed more because like Barbarians, they were allowed a little bit more freedom to do improv, but none of them were done in... None of them were personal. Yeah, there was nothing that was like from them. And they were always like, if you go back to their earliest days doing some of their vaudeville shtick on talk shows and whatnot, you can see like they were talking like, we've always had a belief that you should be strong both physically and mentally. Yeah. So they have this spiritual component that has always been present in their personal lives. I think this was just them being allowed to say something about it and show that off that no one ever knew. And unfortunately, it's just not available to the rest of the world. I know.
0: That's interesting that that natural born killers moment came in at the point it did because they had pushed themselves as far as they could go in terms of both the physicality of the bodybuilding and being leading stars in movies and having their own run as celebrities they went as far as they could go, and I think it ultimately led to a point where they had to step back and start to reevaluate again, like mentally, spiritually, you know, emotionally, have they been able to fulfill that side as much as they had in terms of the fame and the physique? And that's where I think the last couple decades have been more about them focusing on that, you know, bettering themselves as people and as artists. Mm-hmm. I don't hesitate to call them artists. David Paul, I mentioned his photography, I think, is really strong, really striking. I'm glad he's had success in that market. Peter Paul, okay, so there's this clip that's been going around YouTube that someone has dubbed the Bumbarian, Mm. where it's him outside of a college kind of doing this big performance art rant, doing his rhyming poetry and a lot of shouting and it's not my thing. I've never been that big of a fan of that style of performance art, but a lot of people have like passed that clip around talking about how he's lost his mind and that's what Peter Paul did. Even if you go back to the interviews they were doing in the 80s, he would occasionally break into these little rap rhymes and these performance art bits and that's his passion and it doesn't always click with me but everything that he's doing outside that college he's doing in that trailer for face street corner tavern as part of the role that's him that's how he expresses himself yeah that's his art and i'm not going to deny him that i think again you know, he's someone who has struggled a lot and to find outlets where you can explore and express that as a way to help him move forward i'm not going to begrudge him that
1: no in my day job i work with the mental ill mm-hmm. i work in mental health I've been exposed to a lot of people who remind me of Pierre during that thing, but he's not like he's harming himself. I definitely see aspects that seem very familiar to some of the stuff I've seen. And just for the record, I am not clinically trained in any way. Yeah. I'm just an office support staff person, so I do not have any degrees or anything like back this up. But lots of people have mental health issues, yeah. whether that's no, performance yeah, yeah. or if that is just a part of his personality that's always been present. Or a mental health issue where that's the only way he can purge himself of thoughts or whatever. It doesn't really matter because he is who he is and that doesn't make him wrong or bad or different or anything like that. It's just one aspect of him. Yeah. I think there's people who are very quick to like say, oh, he's crazy. Well, lots of people have issues that would be deemed crazy. He's not doing anybody any harm. Whether it's performance or not, he's choosing to do stuff out there. And I don't really see any problem with it.
0: Yeah. And just to clarify, I don't say performance in terms of he's faking it. What I mean is, okay, so we have that video where he does his whole rhyming schemes, he does his shouting, he does all that stuff. And then there's a bit where he turns to the person who's filming and is kind of like, hey, let me tell you what it's really like. I think that's where he kind of breaks the performance. But I think, again, like his performance with the Rhymes game, again, we see this in the trailer for the movie. He has this kind of almost dance thing he does where he just starts shaking his arms a lot. Yeah. What I mean by performance, he's built a routine around exploring aspects of his mental illness. Yeah. I mean, I think those are aspects of his mental illness, but he is finding a way to have an outlet for them, which allows him some level of, I, I hesitate to say control, but some level of peace with it.
1: Mm-hmm. No, I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. I've always heard the saying like, oh, people with mental health issues don't know that they're crazy. Well, no, that's not true. Most people actually are aware.
0: That's almost the more crushing thing is being aware of your brain isn't working the right way, even as your brain is not working the right way. And that just furthers the depression too, yeah.
1: You know, like, hey, this voice isn't necessarily the toaster talking to me. That's just a voice in my head, but it doesn't necessarily make the voice go away. Exactly. Or I know I get angry or I get sad or whatever for no particular reason. That doesn't necessarily stop the emotions, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're not aware. They're likely very aware of Peter's issues, but that doesn't necessarily mean he's wrong or bad for having them or that he's completely unable to function in the real world.
0: Yeah. And the thing that I take away from the Barbarian Brothers, because again, there's quite a few interviews with them on YouTube over the course of their careers. And David even has a couple more recent ones. He has that whole half hour one with one of his churches. Mm -hmm. The thing that I take away from the Barbarians is they are very passionate. Yeah. And they are very thoughtful. They are very passionate. They don't always go in the directions that most people would go. I would even call them eloquent. I know they still have that kind of heavy way of speaking. And again, you know, they were dyslexic as children, so they were illiterate for quite a bit of their cello. But I think they've grown very good at expressing themselves and finding projects that allow them to explore who they are and putting all of themselves into it. Like, I mean, even the bodybuilding days. It was literally they became so passionate about bodybuilding that they did it in a way that no one had ever seen before and were astonished by.
1: It. Yeah. And I like the way David praised it in that interview that you just mentioned. Like he was talking about like everything is an art. The way you dress is a form of art because you are choosing the way you appear to other people. Yeah, He said, and that's how we saw our bodybuilding. He does refer to like the way they were doing it. His term was acidic. He was taking steroids. He was eating protein, which like you said, he's become a very staunch vegetarian. But he's like, ultimately, it was just an expression of our art at that time. And so, pretty much what they've continued to do is basically do their own form of art. Yeah. And I think that's amazing. There's so many people like who don't have that introspection to say, like, hey, the way I appear to the world is a reflection of art in some capacity.
0: Yeah. Even when they did the touring road shows, they dove all into it when they were actors. Again, like when Barbarians came out, there actually weren't trailers that were released. They literally drove around promoting the films themselves. Their passion and the heart that they put into it, and again, yeah. It's sad that everything kind of stopped in the mid-90s, that we didn't really get any more films beyond that, that we didn't see them continue to develop that. But again, if they hadn't put the brakes on their career when they did, I would not hesitate to say that one or both of them would be dead by now.
1: Yeah, especially if they've had drug issues and whatnot, and not just like the steroids, but hard drugs. And as passionate as they are, I could see they might have gone over the edge.
0: Hollywood is a very enabling environment if you already go into it with a problem. Yeah. Sometimes people can come out of that. That can help them and be incredibly. But again, when you're surrounded by drugs and you already have a drug problem. Yeah. That can go very poorly. And I think they needed to stop and fix their lives. I don't want to say fix their lives, but they needed to stop and sort out where they wanted to go. Like, again, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. They had gone as far as they probably could have gone. I'm glad that they're both still around. I'm bummed that we don't get to see any more films from them, but I'm glad that they're both alive, that they both seem to be happy. Mm -hmm. They both are still creative and they're still putting themselves into their projects and still putting themselves out there. I would love to have another film with the barbarians, but my biggest wish is that they just continue going wherever it brings them happiness.
1: I think that says it perfectly. As much as I would love to see more from them, if it's something that would cost them anything, like whether it is their physical health or emotional or spiritual health, then it's not worth it. Mm -hmm. They're happy. And like, at least David seems like he's found some level of success doing his photography. Peter had talked about he was doing some sort of project
0: a video program.
1: A video program? Okay. It was something where he was helping parents find solutions to kids' problems. It was kind of vaguely stated. I wasn't sure entirely how that worked.
0: I haven't been able to find out any more info on that online. I know, yeah, he stated it was kind of like a video workshop program type thing. Okay. And I think it was, you know, kids dealing with, you know, they came up with dyslexia and attention deficit disorder. And I think it was trying to find focus and trying to find outlets.
1: Right. I think the fact that they found some happiness and success outside of Hollywood is totally fine. As much as I would love to see more. And I hope that Sold Out and Faith Street Corner Tavern come out eventually in some form or another, even with Sold Out is incomplete or something like that. But if this is the last that we see of them, I don't really begrudge them that.
0: Yeah, it's not sad.
1: No, it seems like they had their moment and they shined really well for that moment.
0: They shined too brightly and they could have burned
1: out. Exactly.
0: And again, you're just kind of looping this into the Schumacast project. It does vaguely remind me of that period in the sixties where for an entire decade Joel Schumacher shot up through the fashion industry and was very successful at it and was getting jobs at major boutiques. He opened his own boutique and could have to this day been one of the major fashion designers in the industry, but he wasn't happy. A lot of drug issues, it just wasn't where he dreamed of being. And he had that point there right around 1970 where he just brought it all to a close, just closed up shop, came to Hollywood, got off the drugs, and started working in the movies. And within three to four years, was already making movies. Mm -hmm. I can see that point of relation between him and the Barbarian Brothers. Yeah. Whether that was what connected them or not. and Honestly, Joel needs something to do. If Joel and the Barbarian Brothers ever reunited for a movie – I would not be against seeing them just do a kind of like quiet character piece.
1: Yeah, I totally would. Or if they wanted to do a wacky comedy again.
0: Oh my God. A sequel to DC Cab where they're all aged Uber drivers.
1: Oh, that would be interesting.
0: Joel Schumacher, I give you full license to explore this idea freely. You do not have to recompensate me in any way. I just want to see the movie and be happy.
1: Yes. Yeah, I agree 100%. That would be – Ooh. I'm just picturing like Gary, Gary Busey.
0: an Uber. And Mr. T. We
1: could skip Adam Baldwin. I really don't need to yeah, But yeah. I would totally watch that film.
0: Aged cab drivers trying to usher in the new generation of Uber drivers and teach them everything they know, which isn't much, and the Uber drivers already know more. <laughs>
1: DC Uber. Yeah.
0: Ooh, ooh, ooh. Elderly Gary Busey trying to figure out how to use a GPS. (laughs) Just getting angry at it. Just getting angry at it. He's
1: just yelling at the phone.
0: He's going through a whole range of emotions. He's angry at it, then he's pleading with it, then trying to find a spiritual connection with the voice and the GPS.
1: I just want to work with you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I want to watch this film so badly now.
0: Oh my God. Oh my God. That's never going to exist and I so want it to exist.
1: I know. Oh, uh, well.
0: Joel Schumacher and the Barbarian Brothers, the ball is now in your court.
1: Yes. I hope that on some weird chance that somebody with the power to make that film listens to this podcast.
0: I doubt it, but man. It'd be great. I know I said you could take the idea freely, but if you want to make us associate producers, I wouldn't complain.
1: I wouldn't even have to get paid. I'd just take the title.
0: Yeah, yeah. Just let me like email you like thumbs up to everything. <laughs> So that brings our five-part miniseries, Barbarians, to a close. Yes. JD, what did you learn?
1: I learned that I can do a pretty good donkey bray.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, and I learned to not judge a book by its cover. Because again, you know, the Barbarian Brothers, you look at them, they're silly. But what's been nice about this project is they do have depths to explore as people and as performers. They're not just big, goofy, strong men. They actually have a lot of heart, a lot of passion, a lot of thought and ideas, and they are actually really good at telling stories and building scenes and catching the eye and I'm glad we took this journey so I can fully appreciate them in a way they deserve to be appreciated.
1: And I'm glad that you invited me on to do this. This yeah. was a fantastic journey. I really had vague memories of Think Big. I honestly thought it was double trouble that I had seen. <laughs> I was like, uh, yeah, sure, I'll be on this podcast with you. And I didn't really expect to love it as much as I did. But every movie, at least of the four main ones that we discussed and DC Cab, I love in some way or another they all have their strengths and weaknesses, but they all were entertaining. And just looking at from the perspective of these guys who had a level of success, not huge success, and then they got in and they got out. There's something to be said for that, that they weren't one hit wonders, but they weren't the biggest thing ever. And I think looking at it from that lens is really fascinating. And I really found their career path to be an interesting one and a unique one. And it's something that makes me happy that I got a chance to view their careers. Yeah. I think it was really rewarding to watch. And I did learn, like you said, not to judge a book by its cover because I would have thought that they were just dumb idiots who were just all muscles and no brains, but they show like a lot of passion, a lot of intelligence behind those muscles. Yeah. Far more than a lot of action stars of that time. Yeah. Thank you again for inviting me on.
0: Give me the Barbarian Brothers over Michael Dudikoff any day.
1: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs)
0: No, yeah. I'm so glad we did this. Again, it's fascinating that this is like a branch out for Schumacast, where again, it's like, I went in, I'd seen a handful of his movies, didn't really know what to expect, and it's made me fall in love with Joel as a person. Mm-hmm. And this little micro project, it's like, I, yeah, I thought it would be kind of fun and goofy, but it's actually been a really rewarding experience just learning about these really fascinating guys. So, from a pair of non-related bros discussing related bros, I think we finally bid you adieu. <laughs> Ah, yes. Ah. So, good night everybody. <laughs> this has been the Barbarians. Good night. They do everything together. Life's touch in many ways, like the waves upon the sand, turning night into the day. They laugh and cry together. They feel each other's pain like a flame that burns forever. Seeing sunshine through the rain. Our fences were our mountains. A swing was our plane. A red wagon, a stagecoach, and a skateboard a train. Built a treehouse for our castle. And a stick for a sword. Lord. Broliance is a part of Schumacast, which can be found at shumacast.blogspot.com and on Stitcher. That's S-C-H-U-M-A-C-A-S-T.blogspot.com. The music in this episode is Stars by Jack Locke and is used with permission. To hear more, please visit jacklocke.com. That's J A K L O C K E.com. com. and Schumacast are in no way affiliated with the creators and copyright holders of the films discussed. All rights are reserved and no infringement is intended.